You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. June 1st marked the first day of Pride Month, but it also saw the latest in a spate of anti-LGBTQ bills, and specifically anti-trans bills. This one came out of Florida, and it bans transgender girls and women from playing on sports teams that are consistent with their gender identity. Twelve other similar bills have passed in states across the country, and more than 110 others have been proposed, making 2021 one of the worst years on record for anti-trans legislation according to the Human Rights Campaign. In light of this, we asked Carl Charles, a teaching fellow in the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law specializing in gender identity and the law, and a staff attorney with Lambda Legal, to share his perspective. He started by telling us the potential impact of Florida's bill, and others like it, on the trans community and particularly young people. Yeah, so we now live in an atmosphere where trans young people are watching state after state after state debate their existence, their right to participate in educational programs that cisgender children get to participate in, their right to access medical care, which other other children have access to. Um, They're watching their parents have to consider moving their family out of the state that they have lived in for their entire lives, leaving their jobs, uh, leaving their friends, their communities, their churches, their, you know, other, other, parts of the community that they're involved in, um, that is a prolific harm, right? Even if only one of these bills had passed, um, I would be saying the same thing. It creates an atmosphere of exclusion and discrimination. And it it brings up, it, it presents uh, for reasonable debate or consideration uh, trans people's humanity. Um, I think Governor DeSantis signing this bill on June 1st was a particular blow. Florida is a huge state. There are many trans young people, trans adults, trans people living across Florida. Um, And it it sends a clear message, right? That you're not welcome here. You're not welcome to um, participate equally as yourself um, in the, the things that other people have access to because we've decided that uh, you're, you're, you're not worthy, right? You, you don't deserve these things. So shortly after the bill was signed, the human rights campaign um, announced that they'd be suing to stop the law from going into effect. What legal route exists for the, the human rights campaign? And do you think that they have a, a good case? So this is a good question. And um, I will uh, share that HRC is not the only group who's looking to file a lawsuit. Um, Lambda Legal is working with the ACLU and ACLU of Florida and Southern Legal Council to also see if we can work up a challenge to this law. You know, as we told many people when these bills were being considered, this is a solution without a problem, right? This is a, a solution to a non-existent problem. And the reality is, is that we're talking about a real minority of people, right? Trans adults are estimated to make up 1.4 million of the over 300 million adults living in the United States. That's like 0.5, you know, percent of of the population. Trans young people is an is an even smaller segment of that, and trans young people who play high school sports is an even narrower slice of an already narrow slice. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not particularly surprising that trans young people don't necessarily feel particularly safe coming forward to challenge this kind of 
of law, right? Because they're worried about their safety in schools. They're worried about um, retaliation and, and being targeted. If they were to come forward, I think there is a legal, I think there's certainly a path to challenge this, right? Um, a law like this violates, we would argue, uh, the equal protection rights of trans young people, right? The, the right to equal protection under the law. Um, uh, I think we, you know, I think many of the legal advocacy groups would consider claims under Title IX um, that, that this law is in direct violation to Title IX, right? You're excluding on the basis of sex young people from educational programs. That's exactly what Title IX exists to prevent. Um, and we just heard from the Biden administration via announcement from the U.S. Um, Department of Education secretary that there's going to be a statement forthcoming saying that Title IX precludes discrimination against transgender students, right, in a variety of settings. So, um, you know, there are lots of legal avenues for us to challenge a law like this, um, and uh, it will just be a matter of of sort of when and and uh, and how, but rest assured, there is a there is definitely a path, uh, and those challenges will be forthcoming. So, why is this even something that that is being legislated? Um, it seems it seems unusual for children's sports, young people's sports, to be something that is finding its way into policy. Yeah, it's. Um, it is really peculiar, right? It is not a coincidence, unfortunately, that trans young people have been targeted in the ways they have this year. Um, unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is a, um, a, a fear-mongering and a pandering to the, to the base of the most conservative of the Republican Party. Um, partially, this is a 2.0 of the bathroom, the anti-trans bathroom bills from 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, and a lot of that was rooted in the same kind of fear-mongering and stereotypes and misinformation about trans people, right? We are, um, we've come a, a, an incredibly long way in terms of advocacy for trans people, trans young people and adults um, in just the last 20 years, right? Just since the year 2000. Um, but, we are still sort of at the point where um, not enough people think they know trans people in their life, right? And so I'm, I'm comparing it to the movement for lesbian and gay people um, where a big crux of that movement was come out, come out wherever you are. And once more people living in the United States realize that they know someone who is gay or lesbian or bisexual, um, it will it will destigmatize those that identity, right? But I would say, unfortunately, we're we're not quite there with trans folks, and so there are still people who think that and believe the stereotypes and misinformation that's being um, promulgated by our opponents. Um, and so that's why it's really incumbent on us to keep telling trans people stories, right? To center trans people when we're pushing back against these things, you know. Um, and to have our allies and our friends and our family talk about their connection to trans people, to um, to destigmatize and really take apart the the, the fear mongering and misinformation that's happening. I think what's really unfortunate is that trans young people are some of the most vulnerable in our community. Obviously, they're children uh, and adolescents, and so they have uh, unfortunately less articulated legal rights and are really dependent upon the adults around them to support them. So. 
it's it's particularly troubling that our opponents have taken aim at, at this particular group of our community. Um, folks are just really without a lot of power um, to fight back and and they've done so under the guise and sort of the red herring of protecting children, right? A lot of the bills are called Vulnerable Child Protection Act, right? And many of these legislators, state legislators have admitted on record that they've never even spoken to a trans child or a trans adult, or, you know, they're, they're basically taking talking points from outside of, of their state and just sort of parroting them uh, as a way to, to sort of represent to uh, their party that they're taking a hard line on cultural issues. And uh, it is, it's just, it's doing a lot of harm to children in reality. So Florida is not the first state to do this, not even this year. Um, it was the eighth, in fact, to enact this type of ban. And um, the HRC is calling this the worst year in recent history for LGBTQ legislative attacks. So I'm curious if you agree with that assessment and um, why why you think we might be seeing these sort of attacks right now. Yeah, I, um, I, I do agree with that assessment. It is by far the worst year um, in terms of the damage being done in state legislatures, right? We, we even saw more bills um, this year than we did in, in 2014, from 2014 to 2016 in the bathroom era, there weren't as many states pushing those bills forward. Um, so I, you know, I think, as I mentioned, to some degree, it's a, it's a backlash, right? Um, there, the, the former presidential administration did a great deal of harm at the federal level to trans people and to really undoing the work that the Obama administration did in, in uh, advancing and protecting trans people in the United States. Um, the, the former administration basically undid as much as they could of that. And so I think in, in response to um, a new administration, the Biden and Harris administration coming in, um, and so we're seeing states say, uh, we're gonna take our own course, um, and the, our opponents, I will say, have been unfortunately pretty successful in convincing people that this is um, a, a, a palatable issue, right? You know, um, back during the civil rights movement, there were calls to protect women. And that's why we needed segregated bathrooms. And that's why we needed, you know, segregated lunch counters to protect white women, right? And we're seeing a lot of those same calls when it comes to, um, uh, these sports bans in particular, right? It's protect girls, protect women. It's unfortunately a dog whistle that, uh, that many people are responding to, right? Um, and it's largely people who don't understand trans people or our lives or what our experiences are like or how many of us there even are, right? Um, and, and unfortunately it keys into some of the longstanding gender stereotypes that are really pervasive in our culture, in our society. Um, is there an easier legislative route through the states? Why why are states really taking this up instead of letting you know the more conservative Supreme Court handle these things and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I think I think those things aren't disconnected. Actually, it's certainly an easier route in states, especially in states where you have a majority um, held state government. Right, you've got a Republican governor, you've got Republican uh, Senate and House majorities. And I think Arkansas is a good example of this. We even saw in Arkansas, the Republican governor vetoed 
the uh, anti-trans youth healthcare bill that passed the legislature, but because of a simple majority provision, the legislature was able to overturn the Republican governor's veto, right? Even a Republican governor said, this is too extreme for Arkansas, right? I've talked to these children, I've talked to their families, this is going to harm them. And also we're the party of small government. Why are we, in, why are we inviting ourselves into private medical decisions um, that, that trans children and their parents are making, right? That's not where we belong. And the Republican legislature was able to overturn that veto because of provisions in governance, right? Because of, uh, of regulations in that state. So yeah, I absolutely think that um, it's just a, a much easier route in state governments in many cases. Um, and I would just add very quickly that um, I don't think it's disconnected from the desire to re rocket ship some of these laws up to the Supreme Court for review, right? So um, they know that our opponents know that we're gonna challenge these. They know we're gonna challenge the laws in federal court or that they will get removed to federal court. And then once they're there, um, I think our opponents are really excited to try to get them up to a, a circuit court of appeals and then eventually up to the very, you know, the now uh, quite conservative Supreme Court. So that's also something we're considering in our challenges as well. So you recently wrote about an Alabama law that would make it a felony for parents, teachers, doctors, therapists, and others um, to aid young trans people in accessing gender affirming health care. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and the work that you're doing? Um, related to that? HB1 slash SB10 was the first introduced uh, anti-trans bill of the year. And it was by far the most extreme, right? Um, for the reasons you just articulated in your question, right? It would criminalize any person who counseled or referred a trans young person to access gender affirming care. I mean, the first amendment violations first there are just uh, so broad, um, and there were criminal penalties attached to it. Huge fines, licensure re revocation for doctors, um, and and fines and criminal you know uh, uh, penalties like jail time. So we were uh, working with the ACLU of Alabama, the ACLU LGBT and HIV Project, uh, which is based in New York City, um, and we were ready to go to court if that bill were to pass. So it was basically a watch and wait. Um, and in addition to that, the ACLU of Alabama and lots of, of trans people living in Alabama, trans adults and parents of trans children were lobbying state legislators every day, right? Every day until the last day of that session, which was May 17th. Um, and it was, it was on the calendar and we thought they might get to it. And eventually, fortunately, um, they did not. And the, you know, that was a, a victory of, of nothing happening. Um, so, so we've talked about healthcare just now we've talked about sports. Are there other areas where trans rights and LGBTQ rights, um, are being targeted by legislation? Yeah. I mean, we, as I mentioned, we're still seeing some, uh, bathroom bills crop up. Tennessee passed three anti-trans bills this year one about sports, uh, one about healthcare, and one about um, signage in, in businesses where if a business doesn't discriminate against trans people and lets trans folks use bathrooms uh, that accord with their gender identity, they have to post signage saying that they do so. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole 
wholly bizarre and new creative way to discriminate against trans people. So we haven't seen as many this legislative session, uh, but we anticipate continuing to see this grow in, in number and interest, which is bills about religious freedom that constrain uh, anti-discrimination laws in the states, right? So basically carve outs that allow um, uh, people to discriminate and use faith as the sort of window dressing. Um, you know, we're seeing that used as an excuse now. So I think I think we'll continue to see that um, uh, at this in, in in state legislatures, but uh, we're certainly seeing it in other places as well. Um, so that's another one to keep a, keep an eye out for. Yeah. What about in the military? Because certainly that was um, an issue when Trump was first in office. Yeah. So we. Um, Fortunately, one of the first things that the Biden-Harris administration did um, was reverse course on the, on the anti-trans military ban. Um, as you might know, right before, uh, right before the 2016 election and, and the Trump administration was inaugurated in early 2017, the Obama administration had just completed a years-long uh, research and uh, investigation into uh, uh, best practices and policies uh, around trans people uh, serving in the military and found that it was a non-issue and it was totally uh, uh, something that was happening and was able to be navigated with uh, professionalism and, uh, and respect. And the policy was about to be rolled out right as the Trump administration was coming in. So that was a strange reverse course um, unfortunately, the Biden-Harris administration is returning to the policy that, that the Obama administration had spent a lot of money and time um, creating. So I think we're going to see um, slowly but surely, um, you know, the, the return to uh, uh, a well-researched, um, respectful, and inclusive um, uh, service for, for trans people in the military. So in 2015, the Supreme Court decision, Obergefell v. Hodges, um, legalized same-sex marriage. And I think for many that this was a turning point in terms of legal protections for members of the LGBTQ community. So what has the landscape looked like since then? Obviously, we had Trump in, in office. Um, and is this year a turning point for the worse? Yeah, I think, I think uh, like many social movements, ours ebbs and flows. Uh, I think we make great gains, uh, like the one you mentioned in 2015 with Obergefell. Um, we had another really significant, significant gain last year um, in the Bostock, uh, the Clayton County decisions. You know, we, we didn't have uh, Justice Coney Barrett yet, but um, we still had, uh, may she rest in peace, Justice Ginsburg. Um, and that court, in a decision written by Justice Gorsuch, surprising many people, um, ruled that Title VII um, uh, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, include the, the provision that um, prevents discrimination on the basis of sex includes discrimination against trans people and, um, and, and LGB people. So that was another huge advent. Right? That was an incredibly important decision um, that our, our colleagues over at the ACLU LGBT and HIV project uh, represented Miss Amy Stevens, a trans woman who was fired when she came out um, to her employer. She was a funeral director for many years and loved her job and didn't want to leave it, but also could not 
um, alive, not being her true self. Um, and that decision was a really incredibly important one. Um, and it will ripple, you know, it's still rippling throughout our cases. Um, so back to my point, our movement ebbs and flows, right? We, we got that huge victory in 2015 in Obergefell. We got a huge victory in Bostock last year. But now, as we've discussed, we're seeing the worst year legislatively uh, for trans people that we ever have. So things really move in, an, in a sort of ebb and flow kind of way. So um, I think we will continue to have turning points and then we will continue to see backlashes. Um, you know, we don't, our movement isn't over because of good decisions or because of bad decisions or because of really bad legislative years or really good legislative years. Um, uh, I think like many people fighting for justice and, and their humanity and the humanity of others, it's just an ongoing fight, right? Our opponents don't quit and we can't either. So um, I think that's sort of a, uh, hopefully a, a practical view or, or the, I should say that's my practical view on our on our fight so yeah so I'd love to talk about the Supreme Court a little bit more and and just kind of the role that the Supreme Court plays in in this movement how important is the Supreme Court you know as a lawyer I do care about the Supreme Court but I don't want to overstate the importance right I think all of the branches of government are really significant in acknowledging and protecting the rights of LGBTQ plus people. Um, you know, we see that through the executive branch, through the Department of Justice and the Department, you know, the, the other agencies that sort of roll out inclusive policies that trickle down vis-a-vis -vis dollars to support, um, you know, services for people living with HIV to, um, you know, ensuring that, um, that trans people can get ac meaningful access to medical care. Um, all of these things really matter, right? From the executive branch to the to the to the Supreme Court, and then also, you know, Congress, even though it moves slowly and sometimes not as efficiently as many of us would like, also plays a big role, right? And right now, the the House has passed for a second time the Equality Act, and we're trying to move it in the Senate. And that act would be really significant in shoring up federal protections for LGBTQ plus people across the United States, right? And that would provide protections in the states where it's really hard um, with Republican controlled legislatures and you know, houses of governorship to pass any kind of anti-discrimination law or any kind of other legislative state uh, protections. So um, all of those branches are really important, right? I think, I think it can be easy to lose sight of, of how much those things matter. And it can be easy to overstate, you know, the significance of a more conservative Supreme Court, right? Um, we, our movement has existed through many iterations of the Supreme Court, right? From uh, the very conservative during the Reagan years through slightly more liberal, you know, um, both in, in, in history and, and then in our recent past, um, and no matter what the Supreme Court looks like, um, we will keep fighting for LGBTQ plus folks, um, you know, uh, at every stage of their life as young people, as adults, as seniors, um, you know, especially at Lambda Legal, we've been around since the early 70s and have seen things change dramatically and experienced huge setbacks. But, um, you know, I think, we as a community are incredibly resilient in that, even in the worst of times, right? And I would, I would think about the 
you know, the, the days of the plague and the HIV epidemic, um, things seemed really dire then. And they were, they were really dire, but people were in our community committed to one another. Our friends and allies and accomplices were committed to us. Um, and we just have to remember that we come from resilience, right? And we, no matter what the forces outside of us that have more power than us always seek to do, um, you know, we stay connected and invested in one another. And I think we've really seen that um, over the last couple of years in particular. So, Yeah, well, that is a wonderful note to end on. But I have another question. We often talk about the LGBTQ community as one monolithic group, um, but it certainly isn't. So how does the diversity within this group factor into the legal conversation right now? Yeah, it's um, that's a great point. And, and um, you know, one that I think many of us in the in in the advocacy community are thinking really deeply about. Um, I mean, I'll just use Lambda Legal as an example. We went from, um, you know, uh, representing no trans people or, you know, representing one very prominent trans person in the year 2000, um, Brandon Tina, um, who was the subject of a, a movie adaptation called Boys Don't Cry. Um, uh, you know, we represented his estate uh, in, in, a wrongful death suit and in the year 2000 now fast forward to 2021 more than half our docket right is um, focused on the rights of trans people and so you know the lgbtq community is definitely not a monolith right and the needs of our community are diverse and i think within that you know we are um it's incumbent upon us to continue to uplift those in our community who are who are at the intersection of multiple um, marginalized identities, in particular, um, you know, trans folks of color, trans women of color, um, particularly Black trans women, uh, particularly undocumented trans women. Um, those folks are uh, ex oftentimes are experiencing the most um, targeted uh, uh, harm, right, uh, to their existence, and so. You know, I think we, in our work, have to be really intentional about the choices we're making, about the, the cases we're taking on, um, and about who stands to benefit and how that will affect their material lived reality. Um, and, and that's not to say that the needs of lesbian folks or gay or bisexual folks or queer or non-binary people aren't just as important or, or um, aren't something that we think about and work on. Um, and challenge, but as you mentioned, the people being really targeted right now um, are trans people, right? Uh, and that, that again, can't be understated. And so I think in the, when, when folks are targeted really in really significant ways, we have to leverage our resources and our, our talent and our um, fundraising to focus on on those folks and, and making sure that we're protecting them. So, well, as I mentioned, those are those are all the questions that I have for you. But is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you really want want to make sure to hit home or really want to reiterate? Um, I just want to say, and I, I think I've touched on this a little bit, but I want to say that even though this has been, you know, the worst year, I think legislatively in terms of attacks on trans people and young trans people in particular. Um, I continue to be um, really encouraged and um, uh, felt a great deal of, of 
um, you know, resolve and, and, and commitment by watching and listening to and reading about uh, trans people and the parents of trans children in the states where these bills have passed, right? So in Arkansas and in, in states where the bills nearly passed in Alabama and Tennessee and West Virginia and now in Florida, um, the, the folks, the everyday trans people in the states and in the cities um, who have gone and knocked on doors and set up appointments and talked to their legislators, people who say vile, hateful things like to their face or later on in, in committee meetings, um, those folks are the ones who are making the biggest difference, right? Who are um, going out and, and taking on these uh, fights in their communities um, with people who are their neighbors and changing hearts and minds and um, you know, as hard as it's been, those folks uh, really give me a great deal of inspiration and, and dare I say, hope. Um, but th those are the people who who will move the needle for us. I mean, we we do our part, right? Like we are challenging these laws in court. We're we're doing we're doing our part for sure. But um, you know, I just really want to uplift the the young trans people and their families and the trans adults who are. Uh, speaking up every day in their communities and fighting back against these bills, even after they pass. To learn more about Carl Charles and the cases he's tackled at Lambda Legal, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Melissa Hurst, today's host and executive producer. This is Radio Ed.